0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 44, The Dominions. Today we're going to get started on a broad series covering the European Empires. These sprawling affairs, ruled over by relatively tiny and distant metropoles, enriched their overlords and allowed them to project power across the globe. And as World War I proved, they also gave the British and French the means to resist the far greater continental power of Germany. And in their calculations. They would serve the same purpose in any future confrontation. The benefits of these colonies varied region to region, and some were far more important than others, but I'll be covering the big ones and how they affected the thinking and decisions of their rulers during the critical post-war years. And to start off, I'll be going over the biggest of the empires, the British. The British Empire might have been a gargantuan enterprise, but it wasn't monolithic in how it was governed. Part of its success was its adaptability to local circumstances, and making local politics work for them. The government in London was also sensitive to the desires of some colonies over others. While India, for example, languished under a government imposed on it from abroad, there were a number of colonies who had developed self-government to the point where the very term colony was no longer totally accurate. I am referring to the British Dominions. I've used the term before in this show, but now we're going to get into what set them apart from the rest of the Empire. This group included the governments of Canada, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Newfoundland, and eventually Ireland. Quick aside, those last two bear a special mention as to why I won't be talking about them much. Newfoundland, which today is a province of Canada, was a recognized self-governing entity. However, a debt crisis caused them in 1934 to suspend that self-governance and placed themselves back under the administration of the UK. They stayed that way until after the war, when they merged into Canada. All through this time, the area was only modestly populated and maintained a small economy. Their impact was about the same, and no offense intended, I won't be covering them. The other, Ireland, was a special case and constantly searched to exit even the relatively loose Dominion system. I already covered the Irish War of Independence and how it helped stabilize British politics, And given that their remaining contribution to this narrative is only their ongoing quest to politically distance themselves from London, I'll be skipping them too. Other colonies also gained this status in later years, but that was after our period of time and when the Empire started its disintegration. That leaves the four main countries as our primary focus. Strictly speaking, they weren't quite independent nations, but for simplicity's sake, that's how I'll occasionally refer to them. Each of them shared some similarities and no small number of differences, and in this episode I hope to break down how they fit into the greater empire. I should first address what a dominion actually was. The British Empire had numerous settlements abroad that attracted white settlers. And yes, sometimes they were also used as dumping grounds for convicts, but overall these were settler states. As such, they were settled by British citizens who considered themselves part of the empire, or at very least part of a community led by the mother country in Great Britain. However, as generations passed going into the later 1800s, local identities established themselves and those born into the new homeland started thinking of themselves as a member of their local community first, the greater British community second. This was balanced out somewhat by a steady influx of continued immigrants from the UK and a lingering affection for the mother country. But as time went on and the overseas settlements became larger and more complex institutions, it made sense to devolve more and more powers to local governments. The colonies would each come to their own separate agreements with the UK on managing their own internal affairs, uh, recognizing the leadership and supremacy of the government in London, but both parties also recognizing that it'd be good not to test each other unnecessarily. The arrangement worked well for both groups colonies would get the protection of a major power, a source of financing, and additional settlers. The UK would get continued access to the material wealth of its colonies, and continued to use them as bases. The expensive proposition of actually governing these areas would also be delegated, so London would have less hassle to deal with. Everybody was decently satisfied with the arrangements, and in 1907, at a colonial conference, the UK recognized Canada and Australia as dominions, self-governing entities within the Empire. Later that year, New Zealand was also welcomed into the club, and in 1910 South Africa was considered one as well. I'm going to come out and say it bluntly. These autonomous units were given the leeway they received because they were ruled by populations of Whites. All but South Africa had large White majorities, and in every case, the non-White populations suffered persecution and marginalization. They all occupied a privileged position inside the Empire. And it was entirely due to the background of their dominant inhabitants. But even though they had a privileged status, they were still expected initially to follow the leadership of the UK. That expectation changed, though, during World War I. During this conflict, each Dominion stepped up and mobilized for their mother country, contributing huge numbers of soldiers and, in the case of Canada, no small amount of industrial capacity towards the struggle. They also suffered losses equal to their contributions, and by the end it was clear that there would be a realignment in their relationship with the UK. To the credit of the UK's leadership, most saw this as inevitable and were open to their subjects having a greater voice in the making of decisions that affected the whole of the empire. They also earned a higher international profile, and not only had their own representatives at the peace conference in Paris, but also each entered the League of Nations as full members of that body. During the Imperial Conference of 1926, the UK acknowledged the right of each of the Dominions to conduct their own diplomacy when it came to trade, and that the Dominions were equal in status within the Empire to the UK itself, and that the loyalty to a common community and crown was what held them together, which was all pretty significant stuff given that just two decades had passed from the first acknowledgement of the Dominions. But beyond that shared status and background, there were major differences between the group. Vast stretches of ocean separated each, and while their populations shared a common European background, that didn't serve to bind them together. Each had their own particular interests, and as they gained autonomy, their leaders started getting the perspective of independent nations. Men in South Africa didn't have a great deal to do with how Canada managed its affairs, and vice versa. Instead of a network, each mostly stuck to engaging with the UK one- on one outside of the occasional conference. and on that note, let's begin to look at the individual dominions. Now, starting in the South Pacific, there was the most distant of the UK's dominions, New Zealand. It was also the least populated with only a million inhabitants. It didn't stop them from marching off to war though, contributing a hundred thousand men fully ten percent of the total population to World War I, which also meant the seventeen thousand killed and forty one thousand wounded during the fighting in the Gallipoli and Middle Eastern campaigns, stung all the harder. Even with the wartime losses, though, New Zealand was not about to make any move in leaving the British umbrella. In fact, they were pretty cold in attitude on the new powers being granted all through the 1920s. Which may seem odd, but keep in mind the perspective of the New Zealand leaders. They were a small fish in the very big pond of the Pacific. The UK was a protector and one too distant also be a burdensome overlord. (laughs) To the north were giants, perhaps also distant but not insurmountably so, namely Japan and the US. The concern was that to accept the increasing independence being offered would weaken the ties that bound the islands of New Zealand to those of the UK, and ergo, leave the former on its own. This all meant that New Zealand was very very deferential to the UK during the 1920s, and stayed mostly quiet. Over to the west, across the Tasman Sea, was Australia, and a considerably larger piece of the British puzzle. With a landmass that was basically a continent unto itself, and a population of 5 million, the country was the centerpiece of British power in the South Pacific, and the nation was the second biggest market for British exports after India. So it carried with it a good deal of economic importance to the mother country. It Was Australia and New Zealand that were called upon to take the small German colonies that dotted the region in World War I? And Australia would deploy 300,000 troops to fight, like New Zealand, in Gallipoli and the Middle East. Recognizing early on that much of the South Pacific could not be effectively governed from Britain, the UK placed southern Papua New Guinea in the hands of the Australian government before World War I, and afterwards supported the acquisition of the northern part of that land from the defeated Germans. As a League of Nations mandate, as well as the Bismarck Archipelago and the Northern Solomon Islands. This created a long arc of islands to Australia's north that would serve both as a shield to any incoming threats and provide an additional frontier. The need for a shield was fueled by a deep seated insecurity in Australia that unfortunately fed into their imperialist drives towards exploitation. I mentioned that New Zealand feared the larger powers in the North Pacific, and in this, Australia was right there with their neighbor. They also pursued close ties with the British, and actively called on less of a focus on events in Europe and more in Asia. These feelings of insecurity were exacerbated by the lapse of the Anglo-Japanese alliance in 1921. For years, the two powers had been allies, and as such, Australia and New Zealand didn't have to worry too much about the expansion of the Japanese Empire. However, the Japanese, for a number of reasons we'll go into in the next series, started rubbing the United States the wrong way, and relations between those powers started to get worse. As a result, the Americans started pressing the British to not renew their Japanese alliance once it expired. A focused America could take on either nation's navy, against both not so much. The Canadians, not interested in friendship with the Japanese, but very interested in staying on good terms with the Americans, was in full favor of letting the alliance expire. Remember how I mentioned earlier about these guys feeling connected to the UK first and foremost, and not with each other, or even the greater empire? Yeah, it was on full display during these deliberations, as Canada pressed one way, and the Australia-New Zealand duo the other. In the end, Canada won out and Britain did not renew the alliance, instead opting to participate in the Naval Conference in Washington to set limits on naval sizes as an alternative. The idea being set limits meant you didn't even really need an alliance as no one nation was too powerful. Australia really didn't see things that way and started considering how to conduct its own defense in the event of war with Japan, which was now seen as the top threat in the region. This assumption that Japan was going to be a threat also played on the unfortunately racist tendencies of the Australians, and their feelings of insecurity did not help at all. They had already pushed anti-immigration laws back in 1901 to bar nationalities they distrusted, which while the Japanese were the specific target, the laws also applied to virtually all non-whites. This was in keeping with a deliberate policy to increase the white population of Australia, and in addition to restricting immigration to some, whites were encouraged to settle in the country at the same time. All four of the dominions I've been discussing were settler states. But Australia went out of its way to fill its shores with more Caucasians. The idea was that long-term, if the population could be grown closer to that of a major power, then Australia could better look after itself in the region. During the 20s, over 200,000 immigrated from the UK to Australia, which while it was a significant increase for a nation of that size, it was also a far cry to what was needed in order for Australia to stand on its own. Its position of being dependent on the UK to provide defense would be largely unchanged until during the Second World War, and Australia would continue to be a committed partner to the UK in the East. A far less willing partner in the whole imperial enterprise was South Africa. Out of all the bad press each of the nations I'm discussing might have received in the past, none of them come close to the white government of South Africa. And while the complete tragic history of discrimination falls outside the purview of this podcast, its existence permeates the decisions taken by the South African nation and how they related to the UK and the rest of the empire. And that history is just one aspect that makes South Africa such a complicated part of the empire. I'm going to go back a little far because while the others follow a similar pattern of British whites landing on distant shores and pushing frontiers as far as they can, there's a smidge more to it with South Africa. They were, by far, the most problematic dominion, and an overview of the sordid tale is useful for context. The area around the city of Cape Town was originally settled by the Dutch in the mid sixteen hundreds, and it acted as a midway station to the spice trade in Indonesia. During the days of the French Revolution, Napoleon, the Netherlands were invaded and occupied by the French. British, not wanting to let the colony fall into French hands and thereby threaten India, Occupied the settlement and created the basis for the British Cape Colony. British colonists started moving in during the 1800s, and the local Dutch descendants, now referred to as the Boers, started raising stakes and moved further inland towards the northeast. These migrants established two separate states the Orange Free State, centered of the town of Bloemfontein, and the Transvaal Republic, with its new capital Pretoria. The new states were primitive by European standards, and their inhabitants were an impoverished lot. But they held together and established communities based on grazing herds and flocks of cattle in the open grasslands, as well as raiding their surrounding neighbors for more of the same. In doing so, they proved a destabilizing presence, and going into the middle of the 1800s, the British sought to bring them into the fold under the authority of the colonial officials in Cape Town. The situation for the British in the area was not great. Unlike other white colonies, the Cape One was terribly unproductive, and further into the interior. The native populations weren't organized or cooperative enough to properly exploit, as elsewhere in Africa. Attempts at centralizing government in the region were futile for decades. The UK considered both Boer states part of its empire, but was forced to grant complete autonomy to both. London would have next to no influence in the goings on with either nation, except in cases where they could be coerced. This carried on until 1877, when a war with the native tribe went sideways for the Transvaal and the Republic teetered on the brink of collapse. The British declared formal possession of the state and rolled in and repulsed the native threat. With the danger having passed though, the Boers in Transvaal decided to repay the favor and went into active rebellion. In fact, all those British campaigns in the area to subdue native African tribes, infamously among them the Zulu, did wonders to embolden the Boers. The native Africans had been a major deterrent to Boer ambitions and now they had been neutralized. The British had no stomach for a guerrilla war in South Africa, and agreed to leave Transvaal to its old autonomy on a few conditions. The UK specified they would handle diplomacy on their behalf, and there would be some oversight to ensure the Boers weren't expanding their grazing activities beyond their set borders and that the native Africans weren't being exploited by them. Unfortunately, Transvaal's economy was based on doing both those things, and they successfully pressured the British to drop those last two conditions. If you're getting the impression that South Africa this time might not have been London's highest priority, you'd be right. The British, though, did secure a viable pathway northward for English settlement towards modern day Zimbabwe, which created the groundwork to at least fence in the Boers, something they chafe at constantly. All things considered, South Africa as a colony should have gone down in the history books as more trouble than it was actually worth. I mean, everybody in the region was either a farmer or a herdsman, not exactly the most economically exciting stuff. And that's exactly why Britain was allowing the Boers to get away with so much. They just didn't matter that much. That was until the British found the diamonds. And not to be outdone, Boers found the gold. The diamonds were all well and good. Their importance here is that Britain actually had an investment in the region to protect. The gold, though, was of great long-term importance. At that moment, it was a great boon unto itself, but later became an even greater one. We discussed how after World War I, Britain sought to get back on the gold standard, a system which wasn't just an ideal, you actually needed physical gold to back your currency. And this is where that gold came from. And with that newfound significance, South Africa had a lot more attention placed on it, which is also how it wound up even becoming a proper dominion. A guy named Cecil Rhodes, who was in deep with the diamond mines, dreamed of a South African empire in miniature within the larger British one, and pushed his imperial dreams all through the last quarter of the 1800s. He saw the Boers as being in the way, and determined to outflank them by opening up settlement in what he humbly termed Rhodesia, modern-day Zambia and Zimbabwe. British settlement there would head off Boer expansion and force them to fall further back upon the gold mines. Those same gold mines also had the unintended consequence of bringing the Boers closer into the British orbit, as the Bank of England used it as a source for its gold reserves. While the institutions of the Boer republics were adequate for grazing communities, they were not so well equipped to handle the demands of a mining industry that became pretty much the entire basis of the economy, and that industry was uninterested in antagonizing the English. All of a sudden, the British had the leverage to start making demands. The biggest sticking points was the specter of giving full political rights within the Boer Republics to the flood of white migrants coming in to work the mines, and also attend to the needs of those miners. The Republics Transvaal and Orange grew fearful and decided to launch a preemptive strike to force the British to grant them lasting autonomy on their terms in October 1899. This didn't go great and resulted in the Boer War, strictly speaking the second one, with the first one being more of a border skirmish. It didn't go well for anybody. The Boers screwed up their preemptive strike, and while the British got their nose bloodied, that only meant they were enraged enough to commit way harder than they had at any other time in the past hundred years. The war was your typical guerrilla affair. few set-piece battles and a lot of skirmishing in the countryside. The British occupied the cities, but couldn't subdue the outlying areas. They resorted to setting up concentration camps to round up populations they couldn't control, And committed other atrocities that caused Britain a PR nightmare back in Europe. Technically, the British did win. The Boers, exhausted from the fighting and dislocations, gave up in 1902. They gave up their independence but were promised continued self government. And they definitely didn't act like a defeated people. And in just a few years, all the old problems of authority reared their head again. Except this time was slightly different, as a faction coalesced around former Boer rebels Louis Moth and Jan Smuts. I have mentioned Smuts before, and while his turn from helping instigate the Boer War to being a champion of Anglo-Boer partnership might seem on the surface unlikely, it was based in mutual interest, one that would keep South Africa in the British camp going into World War II. Moreover, the pair recognized that while autonomy had been preserved, the damage of the war had weakened the Boer position in South Africa. More English migrants were pouring in as the mines reopened after the war, And they realized that in order to maintain their ideals of white supremacy and self-government, they were going to have to commandeer the system, not fight against it. And so, the Cape Colony, Transvaal, and Orange eventually formed the Union of South Africa in 1910. In exchange for keeping the economic interests of the empire protected, South Africa was now politically dominated by the Boers, who gained a freer hand within the new state. And by a freer hand, I mean they got to exploit African workers in the mines with no oversight from London. All this was not really a recipe for a huge amount of loyalty among the populace towards the British Empire, and the Boers, by and large, never felt themselves part of a British community. But Smuts proved to be a champion of incentive-driven cooperation. He figured that if he kept the UK happy with the idea that South Africa was peaceful and prosperous, that he might be able to expand further northwards. He led the nation into World War I on behalf of Britain and occupied Southwest Africa, modern Namibia. After that, he took charge of the Entente campaign in Tanzania, which, while lasting four inglorious years, was a contribution. Unfortunately for Smuts, a lot of Boers didn't see things his way and resented being dragged into an Englishman's war. Their troop contributions were considerably smaller than the others, although they did serve as far afield as the Western Front. Their insular and white supremacist outlook would not be changed by the New Union or its elevated position within the Empire. And while the voting rights of enfranchised Native Africans in the formerly British, sections of the country were protected, those in the Boer areas, including the mines that were attracting so many workers of every ethnicity, did not enjoy any expansion of their political rights. It was during the 20s that the lot of the native Africans somehow started getting even worse. But the country's whole economy was dependent on the gold mines, with half of the world's gold coming from South Africa. So the economic incentive was to serve the interests of the mine owners and keep costs down. And then there was the growing problems on the farms. For the bulk of the population, agriculture was still their livelihood, and South Africa was not a great place for that due to its poor soil. So there was a growing white underclass that was either unemployed or underemployed, as many jobs in the mines went to cheap native labor, and the farms and ranches couldn't support all that many workers. This created a desperate situation for the elites, as they feared unrest from impoverished whites, but could not break from the cycle of exploitation of natives. That had brought them so much profit. One solution was to follow through on expansion plans northward into southwest Africa. The ex-German colony was assigned to South Africa as a mandate, but also an open-ended one with no clear mission of, de- of development for the natives. Which turned out to be really bad for the natives. When the South Africans had entered the colony, they found ample evidence of German ruthlessness on the natives living there, including forced labor and attempts at extermination. However, South Africans fell into the same patterns of abuse, and even naturalized the small German community there to maintain the largest possible white presence in the region. And about that region, well, there wasn't a whole lot to recommend it. The land is mostly desert, and the economy was based on grazing herds. It wasn't trying to make the economy there viable that Europeans virtually enslaved the native Africans, which provoked resistance, which in turn, the South Africans launched a police action backed by air bombers. But even with the region secured, it was simply too poor to act as a pressure valve, and only about 5,000 whites settled there. To the east, the South Africans were cut off from further expansion when the white inhabitants of southern Rhodesia voted to remain separate from them and continue being a colony. They wanted no part in the unstable powder keg to their south. Now the South Africans would have to make do with the resources on hand to deal with the class struggles among the white population, as migration northward was now barred many elites feared a communist revolution which would threaten the racial order of the country. While this was not really a realistic threat as the divisions between the whites and blacks were pretty well set even among the poor, keeping the white underclass docile was the vital objective of the South African government in these years. Aside from that, they welcomed the ever-increasing autonomy coming from London, while the British resigned themselves to their dominion's racial excesses while happily taking the gold that they mined. Now the last dominion I'll be covering, Canada, is a bit less complicated, but was also individually a more important relationship to the British. It was the oldest of the four countries, and was certainly the most developed and populated. During World War I, they had contributed four hundred thousand soldiers, almost equal to all the others combined. And in addition to providing foodstuffs and resources, Canada also had a prosperous industrial sector, and at some points in the war was providing a third of the UK's munitions. It was Canada's role in the defense of the Empire both in World War I and the projected future that really drove the British to begin accepting the dominions more and more as equals, with the hope that they could all come together and manage the empire together. Unfortunately for those dreaming of a more federalized empire, Canada was not terribly interested in that. The nation and its people were distant from the rest of the empire, and their relationship was pretty strictly with the UK one-on-one. There was also that loud neighbor directly to the south, the United States. Having an economy that big and that rich was like trying to escape from the gravity of a black hole, and Canada naturally became linked closely with the United States. This was especially true going into the 20s, as business investments coming from the US became double what the British were putting into the Canadian economy. And it wasn't just the money flowing in. The Canadian people became consumers of American goods and popular culture. That last bit is very important, as Canadians became more and more American in their outlook and culture during this era. American radio shows, magazines, and newspapers all eclipsed anything coming from Britain. Whereas there was still a strong identification with the UK as the mother country among the English Canadians, their day-to-day relationship was increasingly with the US. This raised an alarm among the Brits, although it was unclear what exactly was to be done. The Canadians early on showed their resistance to British calls to action during the Chinook crisis in Turkey when the Prime Minister Mackenzie King directly advised the UK that Canadian support in foreign wars would not be considered automatic. There was also the incident I mentioned earlier where they pressed the UK to drop their Japanese alliance for the sake of keeping the Americans happy. Ultimately, with the pressing problems both inside the UK, in India, and the rest of the empire. The British could do little to put together a response to Canada's drift towards the American orbit. The relationship between the two was still solid, and Britain was still Canada's best market for exports, but the basis of the UK being the undisputed leader was fading fast. Which really was the story of the relationship of the Dominions and the UK as a whole. The four proto-states, by virtue of their ethnic backgrounds, were all blessed with too much political autonomy to remain ruled members of the empire like, say, India much less the other colonies. And when it came time for real autonomy, not just internal but external, some in Britain saw the opportunity to make a more federal empire, with each of the white components chipping in to make the whole stronger. These dreams were frustrated though, as Australia and New Zealand were still too small to take on a larger share of that responsibility. The South Africans were too self-interested and hostile to what many considered a foreign empire, ignoring how they weren't exactly natives themselves. And the Canadians just didn't see an interest in the whole enterprise. If the British weren't exhausted by World War I, things might have been different. But then again, without World War I, the Dominions wouldn't have been trending towards real independence in the first place. An effort towards Imperial Federation in the 20s, though, might have been a practical objective had the wherewithal in London been there to actually campaign for it. But, simply put, Britain was too stretched at home and abroad to properly maintain its influence over its core imperial components. I'll be checking back in on these guys later on, as the Great Depression did create some incentive for a collective response, but the lack of a long-term imperial vision at this critical juncture allowed for a drifting relations that was not to be reversed. All four would still answer the call when an existential threat emerged, but it would prove to be the last real hurrah of the British Empire. So, with this category of the Empire covered, join me next week as we start a mini-series within a mini-series, and spend the next three weeks covering the crown jewel of the British Empire, India. It was that rich and massive land that allowed the Empire to grow as big as it did, and it became the obsession of British overseas policy. As always, thank you very much for listening.